This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Ricky Jay has been called the greatest living sleight-of-hand artist. When he's working with a deck of cards, it's as if he lives in a different dimension than we do, where the laws of physics have been altered. He makes cards disappear and reappear and move to different places in ways that we know are impossible. But as the late Ross Wetstein said in The Village Voice, he doesn't make us pigeons, but transforms us into awestruck witnesses of what seem like miracles. He transfigures conjuring into poetry. A few months ago, when Ricky Jay did his one-man card show, Ricky Jay and his 52 assistants, the New York Times ran an editorial in praise of him. It's not just what he does that's amazing, it's what he knows. He's a scholar of con games, conjuring, unusual entertainers, and human oddities. Ricky Jay profiled some of these performers in his book Learned Pigs and Fireproof Women, which will be published in a new edition this fall. He's played some pretty strange and sinister characters in the movies. He's been in the David Mamet films House of Games, Homicide, and The Spanish Prisoner. In the latest James Bond film, he played the number two heavy Henry Gupta, the man said to have practically invented techno-terrorism. In Boogie Nights, he played the cameraman who shoots the porno films. My interview with Ricky Jay was recorded in May at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco in an event co-sponsored by Fresh Air and City Arts and Lectures of San Francisco. Fresh Air was in town for the annual public radio conference. Before we meet Ricky Jay, let's hear a scene from the David Mamet film House of Games. Lindsay Krauss plays a psychologist who's being introduced to the underworld of con men. Her guide is a con man played by Joe Mantegna. He's brought her to a poker game, but Mantegna has just lost a lot of money in this game, and he's accusing Ricky Jay of cheating him. What the f*** are you doing with a flush? That big trips where you come from? Give me the money. We lost. I have gathered that. I, um... And if you think I'm leaving here without that check, you're out of your mother mind. Hey, look. I'll look later now. Give me that money. Okay, okay, okay. Give me a moment, will you? Because I won that money from you, baby. I'll give it to you when I get to it. Now don't get pushy. Pushy, Jim. Pushy. You don't know what pushy is. Now give me my $6,000. Please welcome a man you don't want to play cards with, Ricky Jay. Now, now, people might get the impression from that that you are just a really sinister figure in the real world. Now, in your act, you are the gentleman con man. <laughs> I mean, when you perform, you, you have this eloquent language that you use, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Now, why card handling? Your thing is card handling. Why card handling and not sawing women in half or, or swallow, swallowing swords? I suppose one chooses what they'd like to do with women, and sawing them in half has never struck me. As a, uh, um, um. No, what you do is surrounded by secrecy. You don't tell, you don't explain how you do the tricks, and magicians on the whole don't explain things. I know you apprentice two of the people who you consider to be among the greatest uh, in their fields. Di Vernon and, and Charles Miller. Tell us a little bit about what they did that made you want to follow them. Well, they, I, I think in my mind, they really are the two great sleight-of-hand artists of the past century. I mean, that, that's tricky, too. I, I find these labels awfully tough to deal with, and I don't usually choose to deal with them at all. 
uh, it's probably safer to say they, they were just remarkable. And um, I, I suppose Vernon is, is genuinely known as this amazing figure in the art. For one thing, he, he literally spanned the century. Um, and I wrote a piece uh, about him once in, uh, in Buzz Magazine in uh, Los Angeles saying that if, if he had never done magic, he would have been the most amazing man I'd ever met. I mean, this is a fellow who uh, attended the Scopes trial, the famous monkey trial where he cut silhouettes. He made his living, uh, a large portion of his life, cutting silhouettes to allow him to have the time to sit in a room with a deck of cards or a couple of coins and think about sleight of hand. He was always sort of a reluctant performer. And his great pleasure came in, in really inventing and shaping uh, the pieces um, you know, of, of the art of sleight of hand. Uh, Charlie, uh, amazingly enough, w was actually um, uh, a, more willing, a more willing performer. And uh, his venue, uh, at least in the years that I knew him, was largely cruise ships. And uh, not only was he a wonderful sleight of hand man, but he, he was a very good ballroom dancer. So he was uh, particularly well appreciated on cruise ships. When you were hanging around with them, did they do things to kind of shock and surprise you? Did, did, would they ever do something that you were totally unprepared for, an act, an act of magic inserted into real life? Boy, not, not quite. But uh, you, you do remind First of all, it's hard to talk about them. They were so different, even though they were great friends and great friends of mine. They were so different, um, almost any sentence where I'm trying to th put both of them in it is, is kind of tough for me. But, but I will tell you uh, a strange thing. Um, my home club when I first came out uh, from Los Angeles, uh, to Los Angeles from New York was a wonderful place which is still around called McCabe's Guitar Shop, which for, I don't know, probably 30 years now has presented concerts usually of an acoustic nature. And I think I was the first non-music act to ever work it. But for years, traditionally, I would work out my new material there. And one day, I came up with a rather odd premise. And that premise was that I would pretend, well, that, that I would hypnotize uh, a number of people from the audience and then teach them to do slights with, with cards uh, in post-hypnotic suggestion and see what would happen. And this was, as one might imagine, a completely improvisational exercise. Uh, uh, although I stack the deck, uh, as I will explain a little later. Uh, so I brought out, uh, I brought out, uh, I asked for volunteers and a number of people raised their hands and five people came up to the stage. And the first of them was a, a fellow who you'd expect to find in McCabe's guitar shop with kind of long hair, polite fellow, a guy you could have expected to be playing uh, a Doc Watson tune badly. And, uh, <laughs> And uh, next to him was a, was a young woman. And then there was a, a kind of nondescript fellow, maybe about 30 in the center. And uh, another man about the same age, and then a very old man uh, next to him. And um, I, I started saying, I'm going to count backwards from 10. I want you to fall into sleep 10, 9, 8, deep, deep, deeper in sleep. Well, I, I know nothing about hypnosis. Um, <laughs> And I guess this is a good time to tell you four of those five people were friends of mine. And the man in the middle, I didn't know at all. And I said, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, sleep. And this fellow in the middle immediately goes out. His head hits his chest, and he's there in a trance. And I'm realizing I've probably done something very bad here. But, uh, you know, how am I going to get out of this? So... Um, I, I, I now give this post-hypnotic suggestion. You'll all be able to do these manipulations, and I show various stunts with the cards. And um, 
and I, I now say wake up, and uh, you know when I say this word, whatever the signal word is, you'll be able to do this stunt with cards. And I, and I make a, a fan for this first man. I, I decide to use the old man first, and I make a fan of cards for him, I, a very nice fan, and I hand him the cards and say the word, and he now makes a fan with these cards, and by now you've gathered that this is, in fact, Di Vernon, who's in his 80s. And the reason that I thought of the story, it was so surprising to me, it was so realistic that for a second I believed he had never had cards in his hand. It, it, it was quite extraordinary, and he made the perfect shape of cards, but in a way that looked like he'd never done it before, with his hands kind of shaking and, and drawing the cards out. And, and I said to him, do you play cards? And he said, no, chess, I play chess. You know, and, and, and people, they weren't sure what to do, you know, and, and okay, so now I give the cards to, the, to this, uh, this woman, and I do a more serious uh, double fan, and I hand her the cards, and, and she does this just absolutely perfectly. And now the guy in the middle, who knows nothing, is, is elbowing the other guy, isn't this great? I mean, this is really amazing. And, and I say to him, now I'd like you, now I say, do you handle cards to the fellow I don't know? And he said, oh, all the time. And I'm thinking, well, this is, if he actually does something, this is going to be awful. This is not going to be good. So I do a much harder slide. I do what's called a one-hand riffle shuffle. And I, you know, break the deck and shuffle it with one hand. And this guy just very cockily takes the cards in his hand. And I, I'm quite stunned. And then he puts them in his hand. And he, he tries to absolutely mimic this move. And of course, drops all the cards on the floor, which, which is the perfect thing to happen. And the audience laughs. And I give the next guy the nudge, meaning get the heat off him. I mean, I don't want this fellow to feel uncomfortable. But it was wonderful the way he absolutely assumed he would be able to do this. I, I, I mean. <laughs> So I now hand them to the next guy, who's another friend of mine, and, and, um, and I say, do you play cards? And he says, no, uh, not really, uh, you know, and do something. And he does something and purposely shoots the cards all over the ground to make the first guy feel a little better, which is, I, I think, the way it, it should go. And, and then the last guy, um, I ask about doing something, and he said, not cards. And I say, well, do you do anything else? And he said, no, nothing like this at all. And I said, well, maybe you can juggle. And this guy was one of the great jugglers in the world. <laughs> this poor guy in the middle was having a very tough time of it. And he asked me if he could go again, you know. <laughs> just great. And of course, he dropped the cards all over the floor again. And then I introduced everybody. You know, I introduced the juggler, the other man, and then Vernon. And when I told them who Vernon was, they gave him a standing ovation. But it, it really was you know, a wonderfully surprising moment uh, of him making this fan of cards. We're listening to an interview with sleight-of-hand artist Ricky Jay, a master sleight-of-hand artist and a scholar of magic, con games, and human oddities. Now, um, you not only know a lot about cards, you know a lot about the history of con games. I'm interested, yeah. Now, <laughs> in the movie we just saw in House of Games, Joe Mantegna, when he's teaching Lindsay Krauss about cons, he says, people think a confidence game is when you give the con man your trust, but a confidence game starts when the con man gives you his trust. Is that true? I, I think it's a lovely subtlety. I, I've never seen that particular point mentioned by anyone but, but Mamet. But I think it is a lovely thing, that you want to be able to do that. You want to be able to trust someone. I, I a couple of times have been interviewed about cons specifically, and, and the point that comes to me, and it's hardly profound, is that I don't think any of us would want to live in an atmosphere where we couldn't be conned, because we would be so skeptical of everything in life that it would be a horrible way to live. 
So on some level, we have to do that. And the confidence man, you know, is able to inspire that by acting in kind, you know. It's very important. T tell us a con game that you find, a, a con that you find particularly interesting. I, I'll, you, again, it's nice, you know, just your questions are making me think of things. And uh, I'll tell you a story from House of Games. There, there's a moment in House of Games, um, I, I try to make this simple, um, where Mike Nussbaum, who plays the older con man, wonderful actor, is, is showing Lindsay a hustle. It's, it's one of a variety of hustles called Laying the Note, which deal with short change in various ways. And in this particular case, uh, the idea is a man comes uh, over to a cashier, and he says that he wants to send uh, his mother uh, $20 because, um, you know, she, she needs it. And I, I actually think Joey Montaigne says in the film another wonderful mammoth line, make her your aunt, it sounds more pathetic. <laughs> so, uh, and he has a bunch of signals. And so he says, you know what, here, count them out, they're 20. And meanwhile, he's given a $20 bill in return. And when the cashier counts them out, he realizes they're only, they're only 19. Meanwhile, you've seen the con man very clearly take the $20 bill and seal it in an envelope. And, and now the cashier said, you only gave me 19. And the con man takes the 19 singles back. He hands the cashier the envelope with the 20. And he says, he says, uh, I must have left one in the car. Hold on, I'll be back. And the cashier isn't worried because he's a dollar ahead of the transaction at this point. And the con man goes out to his car and never comes back. And when the cashier does open the envelope, where very plainly there was a $20 bill a moment ago, there's only a piece of newspaper. And so he's been conned. And when David wrote his version of this initially, which had nothing to do with an envelope or, 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 or these bills, um, there was something he said to me, how is that? And I said, it's very good. And he said to me, that bad? <laughs> and I said, well, it, it, you know, there's some verisimilitude. Anyway, we, we had a, a small problem with that moment, and he asked me if I would come up with a solution. So I was in a difficult position as someone who loves the con and still have friends who actually make their living laying the note. Um, I, I didn't want to betray something that they would do. And so as a consultant, I did what I'm often asked to do, which is to think of a method that would be appealing for the context in which it was used, in this case, a film. And I came up with a method um, of stealing the $20 bill that's, that's shown in the film, and it, it worked for us in this context. Uh, the film came out. It seemed to do well. People liked the scene. Uh, about six months later, um, uh, a friend of mine who uh, investigates uh, bunko stuff for the police, police uh, sent me a clipping uh, from Denver which said, um, a con man arrested, learn technique from House of Games. <laughs> and so here, I mean, this is an amazing case of art imitating life, imitating art. I mean, I'm purposely using a method that wasn't real, <laughs> coming up with a method, you know, that I think was original. Uh, and putting it in a film, and a man who was an insurance salesman, this is the funny thing, this wasn't a crook, but he saw it and he really liked it and he thought, well, can I do this? And he went out and he did it eight or nine times in Denver, and he was only caught, he, he was never caught in the transaction. Once a woman was explaining what happened to her, uh, to a policeman, she said, you know, two weeks ago a guy did, there he is! And they ran and grabbed the guy. 
and, and, and I wrote, I remember sending this clipping to, to Mamet with, with a note saying, this is clearly the only practical thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> so so what, what is your code of ethics as a, 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 someone who knows a lot about con games? It sounds like part of the code is to protect the con men. <laughs> would you ever... <laughs> I, I guess I did just imply that, didn't I? I, I would, would, would you ever um, run a con on somebody? Have you ever done that? Would I? Oh, heavens no. <laughs> no, no, not I. Um, I have a company which consults on film that's called Deceptive Practices, and, and our motto uh, our motto on the card, it says deceptive practices, and then underneath it says arcane knowledge on a need-to-know basis. <laughs> And that is, in fact, the way that I deal with people in, in the film world or the theater world or the television world if I'm consulting, which is that if a director has to know how a piece works to shoot it better, uh, I'll tell them unhesitatingly. Well, I'll tell them hesitatingly, but I will tell them. And if they don't have to know, you know, I, I'm just not interested in the gratuitous exposure of this kind of material at all, so I, w I won't tell them. No, um, you... Uh as, as I mentioned, you're an expert on the history of uh, really odd and eccentric performers. And you were in a carnival yourself, it's true. briefly, um, as a barker. And I had asked you to do this on Fresh Air. I'm going to ask you again to just give us a sense of what your, your rap was. Oh, the, the pitch I the used? The pitch, as, um, yeah, when uh, you were a carnival barker. Yeah, it, it's called the ballet, more technically, um, on the platform. Yeah, I ran a... Um, a ten in one show for what is a ten in one show? It means ten attractions under a single tent. Ah, okay. Um, so you pay one admission and you get ten acts. Uh, there could be a five in one or a ten in one. Um, I wish you had uh, asked me uh, about this earlier so I could have thought about it. But I, I have a feeling once I start it, I'll probably come back. Um, so. Showtime, circus time, see the magician, the fireman, Appalator, the girl with the yellow elastic tissue, the electrode lady. Yes, the electrode lady at the age of seven, she and her sister were struck by lightning, her sister died, but she lived to tell the tale, 20,000 volts of electricity through the young girl's body. The doctor said she lived because she was immune to the shock of electricity. See the monster child, the monster child from Johannesburg, sat Attica, the monster child with one head, two bodies, three arms, and four legs. You read about it in the leading periodicals. You read about it in the National Enquirer. See Adam and Eve, boy and girl, brother and sister, all in one, one of the world's three living morphodites who will expose itself not to be rude or vulgar, but to show you one of Mother Nature's curious mistakes. Showtime, circus time, let's go be going. They're all on the inside. They're on the inside. Did you, did you write that yourself? No, far from writing it, it's, it's very much part of an oral tradition, including the mispronunciation of words like morphodite for hermaphrodite and curious for curious. And, um, you know, often, you know, the, the guys I knew doing the ballet were illiterate, you know, didn't read. I mean, they, they learned the pitch, they were handed down. And yet, pitches were topical. For instance, uh, what in one year uh, might have been the, uh, the giant rat of Sumatra during the uh, Vietnam War would become the giant rat of Cambodia, you know. Or, um, you know, a, a deformed animal might be presented as having come from, uh, from near the uh, nuclear testing site in Los Alamos, New Mexico, <laughs> or later Hershey, Pennsylvania. You know, I mean, it's, it's, so the, that was the one thing I loved about the pitches, is that they would vary 
uh, depending on topical news. Now, didn't you do an electric chair act with a woman? I did, yeah, as part of that carnival. The electric chair was basically a woman sat in a chair and you would walk up to her and uh, uh, hold a, an electric light bulb or a fluorescent bulb to various parts of her body and they would light. And the finale was usually that she would hold out her tongue and, and you would light the bulb uh, on her tongue. And, and so it would look like she was getting electri electrified. Well, it was never really specified. I mean, uh, you know, it... it uh, and then there was another thing that we did with the girl afterwards, which was called the blow-off, which, which is you then put the girl in a box, and, and you, you put her in this box and then take her dress off while she's in the box, approving she has yellow elastic tissue because the box would seem to be too small for her. You would put swords in the box as well. Take them out, then take the dress off, and for an extra 25 or 50 cents, you would allow people to come up. Please come up and look at the box, but realize the lady lives entirely on the proceeds from the box. And which she didn't, by the way, the owner would take far more of the proceeds than he ever gave the girl. And then the sad blow-off, as it was called, as you would come up, and she would, of course, be wearing a bathing suit. You know, so it was, you know, yet another con on top of the con. So how did she, how did she light up when, when, you, when you would hold the light bulb on her? I'd say that that was uh, arcane knowledge on a need-to-know basis. <laughs> Ricky Jay recorded in May at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco. You have something called the Journal of Anomalies. It's a quarterly that you publish that kind of just profiles eccentric performers from throughout history. Now, it strikes me now, you know, these are the kinds of people who might have been in freak shows or something, and now it would be so politically incorrect in a way to have a freak show, you know, which is to stare at people who have no arms or legs, even if they can juggle anyways, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, So, uh, um, do you wish that there was a way of people like that presenting their act today without us considering it politically incorrect or exploitative? Yeah, this is a very difficult issue because normally the showman will tell you if you talk to the act, you know, whether it's someone with a physical deformity who's making their living by presenting that deformity, that these people would prefer to do that than they would to, you know, sit in home and, and be unable to earn their own livings. And, and I think that's a point well taken. I mean, I understand the political correctness issue, and there are clearly some performers who have been horrendously exploited, which is the other side of that. But there are many people who, who did these acts with dignity. I mean, I think my favorite um, uh, is a man called Matthew Buchinger, who I've spoken about a lot, who was born in 1674, since you mentioned, had no arms or legs, was 28 inches tall, uh, played eight or nine musical instruments, did trick bowling shots, uh, uh, threw swords at a target, danced the hornpipe, uh, did, did magic beautifully, sleight of hand beautifully, cups and balls and card and coin effects, and coincidentally had four wives and 14 children. So, um... Have you, have you met any people like that, like when you were, in, in, when you were doing Carnage shows? <laughs> if I could go back in history and meet Matthew Buchinger, I would be so happy. Um, Why? Why would you be so happy? I, I mean, I think in many ways he's the most remarkable man that I've ever read about. I, I think in all the things I've collected, you know, I, I very seriously collect memorabilia, books, playbills, materials about these people who interest me. And, and none of my holdings are more remarkable to me than the works of Matthew Buchinger. For one thing, he was an extraordinary calligrapher. He had uh, pretty much, I, I guess, what these days we might call uh, thalidomide fins. 
and he was able to squeeze his two hands together, and that's how he would do the cups and balls. I mean, so think about that as well, that, that normally when a magician would perform something with objects like that, you would think that he would use one hand to move the cup and distract your attention from some illicit slight that he might be doing with the other, where Buchinger clearly needed both hands to move a cup or to move a deck of cards. Uh, but he also did this, this calligraphy that, that's utterly extraordinary and for some reason unknown to me, I've been remarkably fortunate in gathering original materials of his. I, I just got one very recently which is a piece that he did in 1730 that I guess could best be described as, as uh, an architectural drawing. It's about this big, about oh, 20 by 11 inches, something like that, which uh, is, is very large for him and uh, when he was about 55 years of age, which every, every square inch of this drawing is filled with the most remarkable filigree panels and letters and the central images of the Ten Commandments, the two tablets within this architectural framework of columns and then it goes to the creed and the most minuscule, much, less, uh, much smaller than the size of a dime, the complete uh, Lord's Prayer done in micro calligraphy uh, on vellum, you know, with pen and ink in 1730. I mean, these things are extraordinary. They're, they're amazing. Uh, I mean, this, you know, was a fellow who I, I'm sure uh, showed a lot of pain and suffering in the doing of the miniature work, but who also uh, was someone who was a major figure of his time. I have a broadside of him that literally calls him the greatest German living a broadside from 1726. I mean, he was incredibly well-known. And, and there's a little, uh, almost like poem that goes along with that. See gallants, wonder and behold, this German, German of, of imperfect, imperfect mold. mold. No legs, no feet, no arms, no hands, yet all that art can do commands. First thing he does, he strikes a letter. No Elzevirian type is better. I mean, it's just wonderful. I, you know, um, the, the, yeah, the, the recognition that he achieved, um, you know, doing, doing these marvelous things. I mean, I, I would have loved to have uh, spent time with him. I love the language that goes along with these. Oh, things. so do I. Yeah. And, and, and you, mm. when you perform, you have, you, you, you use an almost Victorian language in your show, I think. It's a very colorful uh, patter. That it would be use. simpler to say I just overwrite, I suppose. But, yeah. <laughs> um. You were introduced to magic, I think, by your grandfather mm -hmm. when, when, when you were a kid. What was his uh, magic act like? Well, he, he didn't so much do an act. Uh, at times he did. During, during the, uh, the Second World War, he did perform for, uh, for servicemen. He did USO shows, and so I imagine he did an act then, but that, that's before I was born. Um, he was an amateur in, I think, the best sense of the word. He was a lover of magic, and, and uh, he was just interested, and he took lessons from you know, remarkable people and was a very patient and good teacher, and uh, so it, it certainly inspired me. Um, and did he teach you things? Oh yes, absolutely, yeah. Very specifically and absolutely. And then not only did he, but he, he got the great people of the day who were also his friends and his teachers to spend time with me as well. Like Slidini. Like Slidini. Who was Slidini? Well, Slidini, uh, Quintus Marucci, was an Italian man who lived in the city who did this wonderfully poetic uh, magic and was a wonderfully artistic fellow. I mean, he actually made me in those years. Um, he, he was a wonderful tailor, and he made suits that were like Spanish Toreador outfits where every flower was dyed by hand and put on with sequins. And, these were, and that's what I actually performed in when I was a young boy, 13 or 14. And... Uh, 
um, you know, with penciled-in sideburns. And then I, I suppose when I was about 15 or 16, I realized that I very much wanted to, uh, to make a cane float in my act. And suddenly it dawned on me that most people in a Toreador outfit wouldn't actually have the kind of cane that accompanied a top hat and tailcoat. <laughs> and that's when I think I, uh, I really concentrated on cards. But, but Slidini was wonderful, and, and he was considered a master of misdirection, of the art of... of uh, um, well, I, I always like to, to deal with the concept of misdirection positively rather than negatively. The idea was to direct an audience's attention exactly where he wanted it directed. But Slidini was a man who, who did miracles. He would take a, a cigarette from someone, a lit cigarette, and clearly break it in half, you know, and show you both halves of the cigarette and roll it between his finger and hand back a perfectly restored cigarette. I mean, it, it was as close to real magic as, as you could hope for. We're listening to an interview with sleight-of-hand artist Ricky Jay, recorded in May at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco. Now, your grandfather presented uh, magic acts and um, sometimes, and one of the people he presented, Theodore Anneman, was going to do... Oh. He was going to do the famous bullet-catching trick, which I've actually, I think I've seen Penn and Teller uh, do that, um, a version of that more recently. But anyways, the, I think right before your grandfather was going to present him, he committed suicide. Mm -hmm. That must have been pretty upsetting for you. You must have been pretty excited that this was going to happen and everything. And this uh, again, this actually happened before I was born. Oh, so, oh, uh, oh. Uh, in sympathy, I, I was upset. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, in retrospect. But, on the other hand, Theodore Anneman was an incredibly inventive man whose work I read subsequently, and, and it is a really sad event. Uh, how much it actually had to do... He was a very reluctant performer, Anneman, and, and the story was that the bullet catch always had this element of danger, and over the course of performing this over a number of hundreds of years, many magicians had lost their lives. But uh, it's also safe to say that Anneman had problems that were not directly related to the bullet catch at all. Uh, <laughs> But he, he really was uh, a remarkable inventor of the kind of uh, illusion these days that are called mentalism or psychic effects or ESP things. And, and uh, he was very precocious and very, very clever. Now, the, the trick that, that he did, this bullet-catching trick, mm -hmm. where I think you catch the bullet in your mouth or something, mm -hmm. or, or the illusion is that, that you do. I think you wrote that like 12 magicians were, were killed in the process of doing that. Do I have that right? Uh, there, that, that's a number that's frequently cited, yeah. But are there a lot of like, acts that people have done over the years where they actually lost out and, and, and died in the act? There are a fair number of them, yeah. I, I mean, uh, what you have to try to deal with is how much of that is hype and how much of that is real. Obviously, if you're the person who was killed by the bullet, you know it's real and that's not good. The, the most famous man who actually died trying to catch a bullet in his mouth was Chung Ling Su on the stage of the Wood Green Empire Theater in, um, in England in uh, 1918. And Su, he's an amazing story for so many reasons. First of all, uh, he wasn't Chinese. Um, <laughs> his name was William Ellsworth Robinson. He was an American who was uh, an assistant in some of the great magic shows of the, of the day, the shows of, of Herman and Keller. And he also wrote a book with one of my favorite titles uh, in all of uh, the literature of magic, Spirit, Slate Writing, and Kindred Phenomena. Uh, and Robinson, you know, was great. And, and at this time, uh, a fellow named Chingling Fu, not Chungling Su, but Chingling Fu was a real Chinese magician, who began to make his reputation in theaters in England, uh, one of the first really successful Eastern performers, 
to appear uh, early in the 20th century. And there was a market suddenly for, um, for Oriental performers, uh, for Asian performers. And Sue, Chung Ling Sue, William Ellsworth Robinson, realized that he, if he took on the identity of a Chinaman, might be able to get work. And so he literally went to London, pretended to be Chinese, had his hair shaved, had a queue, uh, tried to make his features more oriental, and, and began to perform his act. What's truly extraordinary is that Ching uh, uh, Ling Fu was, of course, very upset by this and was a wonderful magician, a really great magician. And he challenged Chung Ling Su uh, to an entertainment in which the one who did real Chinese magic, um, you know, would be declared the victor. And somehow uh, Chung Ling Su won. I mean, the American managed, managed to do a more impressive show. And they, they were both great. So, so Chung Ling Su kept this persona up for a, a long time and called his wife Sui Sin and, instead of Dot. And, and uh, <laughs> Uh, on the stage of this theater, uh, he actually was killed when, when people, uh, a bullet was marked and identified and loaded into a rifle, and a rifleman aimed the bullet at Sue. The bullet broke a china plate, which he had in his hand, and he would then, the illusion would be, would catch the bullet in his, in his teeth, between his teeth. And uh, the, the effect has differed uh, on some minor points over the years, but that's a basic uh, explanation of what it was. And on this particular night, um, you know, Sue was actually killed by the bullet. The coroner's report uh, called it misadventure, in that wonderfully British way of uh, describing uh, events. Have you ever been hurt in anything you've done? Yeah, people shaking my hands too hard. <laughs> no, I've had nothing vaguely uh, like that. Now, you're, you're semi-famous for not liking children very much, and for... <laughs> Well, I always wondered about an epitaph. I guess we've got it now. I don't know. And I think you've been known to even um, end a performance if there were too many children in the audience. You You're not going to tell that story about me killing hundreds of them. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that story. Um, what is it about children when you are performing that is problematic for you? I, I think it's pretty simple. It has nothing to do with the children. Um, it, it has to do with having an art which I take seriously and which has existed since the beginning of time, written off as an entertainment for 15 minutes at a child's birthday party. It's, it's that simple. That's not what it's about. And it's not what it's about to me, and I don't want any association with it. Which doesn't mean that a child can't enjoy a magic show, and it doesn't mean that there aren't people who like to perform magic for children and who do it well. You know, it just means that I'm not interested in it. And what kind of kid were you when you were doing magic? I mean, uh, did... <laughs> I was never a child. <laughs> I should mention that you had, a, you had a magician at your bar mitzvah. Um, well, should you, yes. Is, you what what was his name? Al, Al Flasso, yeah. Yeah, and he, I think he ran the magic store that, that you frequented? But more than ran a magic. Al, Al Flasso was one of the great magicians who ever lived. I mean, this was actually the, you know, I, I think I say in Mark Singer's piece, the only kind memory I ever had of my parents was that the... They told me that uh, Flasso always worked uh, Grossinger's in the Concord. You know, he worked the Catskills all the time. And he was on the Sullivan Show many, many times. This was a great act. Um, and that, you know, he was unavailable to be at the particular, you know, at my bar mitzvah. And uh, they were, you know, conning me and, in fact, had hired him and he came. So that was actually wonderful. But, I mean, here's a man who did often perform for children, who was absolutely brilliant, you know. 
But, but then again, a good deal of his act was uh, going on on a level uh, involving entendres, which the children could never begin to, right. uh, to understand. So. so did he make your yarmulke disappear? <laughs> <laughs> no, but... Uh... <laughs> oh, you, you, you <laughs> now, did you think you'd be able to make sure a living... Do you want to switch the papers and go to a new page here, Terry? <laughs> you can make my notes disappear, probably, too. Mm. Um, how did you end up in the carnival? Oh, I ended up in the carnival. I was um, in uh, my, my, my very poor academic career. I, I was, um, I was um, at Cornell, and, and every year a fair would come to Trumansburg, which was very close to Ithaca. And uh, a bunch of buddies went out to the Trumansburg fair, and there was a magician performing in this ten and one. And um, he wasn't very good. And, and as, as buddies will do, particularly in those years, they go, oh, show him something, Ricky, show him something, you know, which is terrible. I, I would never in a million years do this to anyone's act, no matter what level it was on. But this guy picked up on it and started going, yeah, show me something, Ricky, show me. And I just said, no, no, I, this is, you know, please continue. I'm very sorry. I apologize for this. And he just wouldn't get off me, you know, show me something, Ricky, show me, you know. And this was a guy with gold lame hair, and I, I and this was, <laughs> anyway, I, so uh, the show finished. And even after the show, the guy came out approaching me again. He just wouldn't let this drop. And at that point, I did take the cards and did something for him, and he was surprised. And he said, uh, if you ever want to come out on the road with me, um, you know, it'd be, uh, you know, I'm, I would love to have you work in the show. And I was, uh, it was a summer, and I was attending bar uh, in, a, in a bar in Ithaca and doing some sleight of hand behind the bar. And, um, <laughs> that was the job description, I might add. I, conducting turtle races, all the usual stuff. And, uh, I got a call one day from this guy. I mean, he tracked me down to this bar and said that someone had dropped out of the show and would I come join the carnival, which was then in Canandaigua or one of those little Finger Lake communities, and that's how it actually happened. Now, when, when you started um, doing magic professionally, I think, it was in the 1960s or 70s, and it was during what was in part, you know, like the LSD or a lot of people in your audience were probably... Um, hallucinating while you were performing <laughs> this sleight of hand stuff. It must have been a pretty strange time in a way to be doing uh, magic. Well, it, one of the jobs I had, I mean, I was doing it professionally quite young, doing TV That's true, stuff, you were but, seven, but I think, it, when you started it, performing. In the 60s, I did get a job in the Electric Circus, which was the, the great psychedelic nightclub in New York in the 60s. And I literally performed sleight of hand in between Ike and Tina Turner and Timothy Leary lecturing on acid. That, that is true. And, and I dare say, you know, most of the people who were watching it were blazed out of their minds. And it, it, it was a very peculiar uh, experience. Um, I'm not unhappy that I did it, and I uh, cherish the memory. <laughs> but they must have just read all of this stuff into what you were doing. Yeah, it was strange. I mean, I had people throwing punches at me and grabbing rosary beads and running out of the club. And I mean, I, it, it ran through the gamut of emotions, sure. I, I, and I probably it's, it's the experience in my life where I had least to do with, with the reaction that was in fact happening. I, I don't... Uh,
We're listening to an interview with sleight-of-hand artist Ricky Jay, recorded in May at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco. Now, you've worked a lot with David Mamet in a bunch of his movies. You've, you, your your uh, film company, Deceptive Practices, consults to movies on con games and illusions and things like that. Um, how did you get involved in that end of movie making? Uh, the first film I ever did, I, I, was asked, uh, I was asked to do that, it was a film called The Escape Artist, which was uh, produced by Francis Coppola and directed by Caleb Deschanel. And I'm very bad on dates. I mean, I'm going to guess it was sometime around 15 years ago. I, I just don't know. It's a very interesting film with, uh, that got a, only a limited uh, release with uh, Raoul Julia and Terry Gar, and it starred Griffin O'Neill. Was Ryan O'Neill's son as a magician at a young age. Came from a very interesting novel by a, a West Coast poet named David Wagner, and um, they had interviewed a lot of people about being technical consultants, and uh, kind of they had, they had chosen to go with someone. And on the last day, my uh, literary agent of all people got me an interview uh, for this, and uh, I talked to. Uh, to the producers, to Doug Claiborne and a couple of the other, uh, Caleb, the director, and they liked what I had to say and asked me to come on. And th that turned out to be a defining experience in the sense that I was on that film for almost a year and did so many things on it. Initially, it was to teach this, this young, this uh, teenage boy how to do magic for the film. But it involved the uh, costume consultations and uh, props and... Uh, I, at one point, even writing the script, I mean, I would get a call from Francis and say, you know, w would you write an opening for a few? Yeah, I mean, oh my good Lord. I mean, that, that was an amazing thing to actually have happen. And I remember calling up the writer saying, I, look, I don't know that I'm, oh, go ahead, it's nice that you called. And for a week, uh, the opening that I wrote was in the film, and then one day it was never discussed again. And that, you know, <laughs> so I, I learned a little about film as, uh, <laughs> as a writer, which was fun. I was just thinking of Mamet's line about that. He said, uh, I'm sure you know the line, he said, uh, when people told me uh, about film and that it was a collaborative effort, I realized uh, I never heard the whole sentence, which is, film is a collaborative effort, bend over. <laughs> so obviously, somehow I found Mamet and we've had a lot of fun since. I don't know. It's, uh, now, a lot of what you've learned, you've learned from actually knowing con men. How did you find them? <laughs> well, I guess it was that ad in the New York Times. You know, exactly. I, <laughs> exactly. I mean, a magician performs, you know where to find them. What about yeah, a con man? True. No, I, I mean, I, people who are... I don't know how to... I, I really don't know how to explain that. I mean, you meet people, I, I want to say, with like interests. But I, <laughs> I... Well, I will say that. You meet people with like interests somehow. I mean, you do. So, but where? I mean, carnivals? Carnivals? How can I find a con man? <laughs> oh, one will find you. <laughs> would, I, would I be a good mark? Would, would I be a good mark, do you think? Are there certain people who, who are good marks? I, you know, it's a difficult question to answer. I think we're all susceptible to being marks unless, as I said before, we're so calloused and so jaded that we trust no one in their lives. I imagine that you, you are trusting, and so you're, you probably are a good, uh, a good mark. <laughs> do you still have to go home and, and practice? Yes. What do you practice? Well, this particular show that I'm doing, 52 Assistants, requires, uh, there's a, a level of, 
you know, skill that, that I have to keep up with. I mean, that, that's very specific. I mean, I really, when I'm doing the show, I usually rehearse for a couple of hours in the afternoon and get to the theater a couple of hours early and continue rehearsing just to, to keep my chops up on, on the level of material I'm doing in that show, even though I've done it hundreds of times. It, it feels good to me, by the way. This is nothing where I'm, uh, I'm trying to elicit the sympathy of the audience. I mean, I like to rehearse. Tell me why you, if you could, like why you love um, the, the magic of sleight of hand, of, the, of, of card tricks. What? Well, I, I, you, suppose, I mean, you make it beautiful. It's, it's I, I suppose I, I do, you know, I mean, I, I like to see beautiful illusions done as well with lions and tigers. And, I mean, but for me, I, I guess it's the idea of having the, the direct relationship with those objects, the idea that, you know, someone could hand and uh, one, a deck of cards, a coin, uh, you know, common everyday objects, and that you can create something genuinely interesting with that is, is something that, that I always found worked. I mean, I, I just thought it was really exciting to be able to, to do that. Isn't there a part of you that instead of um, just not telling how you do things, really wants to say, this is how I do it, this is how I figured out how to do it? Like, isn't there a part in magicians that would really like to kind of brag about how they do what they do instead of hiding it? Absolutely, is the answer. Absolutely. There are times where you're, you're crying to tell someone, whoa, look what I just, you know, you really want to do that. You absolutely do. But you can't. But you can't. I, I, I think, yeah, I think you can't. You go home and tell your friend, you know, your, your best friend, you know. Who's this, also this a magician. What, oh, yeah, clearly that's the implication, right. Who's also a sleight of hand artist. Yeah, this is what happened. Yeah, you really do. And here's another funny thing. There are a number of effects in, in the panoply of magic where the method is really better than the effect. Where you, you, you know, it, it, something happens. I wish I could give you a good example for radio, but I, I, I don't think of one at the moment where what's happening behind the scenes is 20 times more interesting than what you're actually seeing. And you're dying to say to the audience, boy, if you could just see what... And, and you really can't. I mean... Uh... Ricky Jay. Our interview was recorded in May at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco in an event co-sponsored by City Arts and Lectures of San Francisco and Fresh Air.